to the man who fell among robbers. And he said, the one who showed him compassion, the one that showed him mercy. And he said, you go and do likewise. I'd like just by a show of hands, who believes from what I've just read and our commitment as a church and what I've just read from the Bible, who believes that the church is commanded and called to care for the vulnerable? Raise your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. So that's good. That's good. So what I'm not going to do, you know, because the last few messages that Josh has worked with, they've been a little more challenging in our culture and in our context because a lot of it is trying to root some of you back down in the word of God and kind of do a more persuasive message that this is what God is calling us to. But I believe that you're with me and you know what God is calling us to. So I don't want to like pick my way through the text. I've taught this text many times through the years. I've built training and curriculum. There's so much that can be said about this text, but I'm not going to pull a lot out of it. There's a few observations I want to make, and I want to really land on one observation and learn from that. The first one, and this is where we can pat ourselves on the back and we can celebrate what God has done through the church, is the first is, I believe the Evangelical Church of America has done a phenomenal job at seeing, having compassion, and going. We love to go on trips. We love to go do projects. We love to give financially. We love to go have a moment and share good news with the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. We will see, we will have compassion, and we will go. And I think it's been a massive gift. I say that with all sincerity. It's been a massive gift. Just like I was calling you to. Please, if you would, give because refugees need it. You know, that's huge. Those things are huge. But there's something else that I think Jesus is doing in this story. And that is the Samaritan. But the Samaritan, Jesus says. Now, a lot of you, I'm also going to make an assumption that a lot of you know God's word and you know who the Samaritan is. And who is the Samaritan? In brief, Samaritan, the Samaritans lived on the margins. They were not part of God's people. They were the outcasts. They were the half-breeds. They were not welcomed into God's family, at least by God's people. And what does Jesus do in this story? He takes someone that is existing on the margins. He brings them to the center of the conversation. He lifts them up and exalts them as the hero of how to love the margins. From the margins to the center, lifted up, hero. And why is this so hard for the lawyer? Because he probably looks at the Samaritan as less than human. He can't even say his name. I can just see Jesus looking at the lawyer. Say, say his name. Say his name. He can't even say it. The one, he says, the one that showed him compassion. The one that showed him compassion. And I think, why, do, why, why is this so difficult? Why is this so difficult? Because it's humanizing, and it's not just saying that we need to go to, we need to do for. It's actually saying we need. And that's where I'm going to sit, is that we need the margins. We need the vulnerable. We need them as much as they need us. Do you believe it? You believe that we need them, or do you believe that we just need to do kind things in service for them? You know, Jesus has a way of doing this continually, lifting up the margins and bringing them to the center. And what, what he does is how I like to say he's, he goes to those that are foreign, and not just like you think of foreigners outside of country, but he goes to those that are foreign from God's people. Those people that are foreign become friends, and then they become family. Jesus always has this vision in mind. He doesn't like to keep those foreign foreign. Those that are foreign and those that are on the margins, he likes to bring in. You think about the woman at the well. He goes out of his way to Samaria to the woman at the well 
who is foreign from God's people. Not the route the disciples would have chosen, but Jesus knew this is where we need to go. So he goes too. They become friends. What do they always say about Jesus? This man eats and is friends with tax collectors and sinners. And I want to sit on that just for a second. This man eats. You know, there was a curriculum that I developed a while back called the neighbor's table. And I'm going to give you the heart of the neighbor's table. And this is what Jesus does. Is Jesus is over here and he builds a table. A literal dinner table. And who do you have at this dinner table? I want you to just think of the stories and Jesus' interactions. You have uh, a woman caught in adultery. You have a woman of the city. You have the tax collectors, the sinners. You have the children. You have widows. You have the Samaritans. You have the blind, the lame. You have the margins, the vulnerable women and the margins of society. This is Jesus building his table. This is who he's eating with. But over here, you have another set of people as well that a lot of us are familiar with if you read the Bible. You have the Pharisees. You have the Sadducees. You have the people on the center that are in the center of culture and society. And Jesus isn't saying that these people over here can't come. He invites them. Whosoever will. If you want to come, come. Come and sit at the table. But they're always confronted by knowing who's already at the table. They know that if they come, they have to sit next to the woman caught in adultery. If they want to come and sit at the table, they have to sit next to the woman of the city. Do you remember the story with Simon and the woman of the city? Jesus is eating a meal with Simon, and a woman of the city comes, and she breaks open a flask of ointment. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She's weeping, and she's wiping his feet. She's weeping, wiping his feet with her hair, and Simon is disgusted by what he's seeing. He He can't even fathom, honestly what he's actually seeing. And what does Jesus do? He exalts her and makes, God, I get, the love of Jesus. Ah, yeah, yeah, man, woo, it overwhelms me sometimes. I'm telling you what, the love of Jesus, he exalts her and she becomes the hero. Does she not? He calls out Simon. He can't even, he can't even stand that this woman is in their presence with them. And Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came in, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't take care of me. This woman is the example to follow. She is the one we need to look to. And those people that Jesus lifts up, they become family. Think about the thief on the cross. Think about three men completely exposed, naked, and humiliated before a crowd. And you think about one man that mocks Jesus, another man on the other side that says, can you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't just say you're going to be in paradise. He says, today you're going to be with me. You're going to be with me. You're family, man. You were a foreigner. You were on the margins, and now you are family. Covenantal relationship. Jesus brings them in. And why has this been so hard for us as a church? And I don't just mean... Redemption North Mountain, I mean the church, I've, I've done this for 10 years now. Why is this so hard? Because I don't think we look at the margins, the vulnerable women of the city, and we say, we need you. I have need of you. And where do I get that language? 1 Corinthians 12, Jesus is, or Paul, excuse me, Paul is talking about the body of Christ. And he's talking about how can we look at one part of the body and say, I don't have need of you. And not only that, every part of the body, no, no matter if you're rich 
or poor, you're black or you're white. Every part of the body is important, but the weakest, most vulnerable parts of the body are worthy of the most honor, Paul says. You know, for 10 years, I've sat down with the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, and I've had one conversation that's been continual, whether it's a refugee that's a Muslim, and I'm trying to encourage them and tell them that their life has value. They're created in God's image. They have worth. They mean something. Lift them up. Or whether it's someone that's poor and weak, whether someone's culture or race isn't as easily accepted in the church, trying to lift, no, 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 you matter, man. Your voice, I need you. We need you. In 10 years, I've never had a rich man sit down with me and say, hey, do I matter in the kingdom of God? You know your Bibles. Which one is warned more? Which one's warned more? Now, why is that? (laughs) Why is that? Because culture tells all of us a story. Culture tells all of us a narrative, and we can either choose to believe the biblical narrative is telling us that the place they have of the weak and the vulnerable, or we can believe the cultural narrative. And that's what I'm trying to do. Call us back to the life and the ministry of Jesus the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I believe in the church, and this is the church at large in America. This might sound hard to some of you, but man, I believe it's left the church anemic and, and mediocre in so many ways. I said it. I'm sorry, I said it. I mean, I just, I said it because I think facing the, the brutal fact, I don't, then this, once again, this is, this, and I'm going to get to me here in just a second. This is just are you, this is me. Once again, facing the brutal facts that we haven't looked at the vulnerable and said, I need you and I love you. Now, why? Why would I say that? Because love, true love, the love of God is covenantal, is it not? What is covenant? Covenant, I look at as a binding contract you cannot break. You think of the best lawyer in the city with the best contract, you know, written in blood, written by the blood of Jesus that cannot be broken, wrapped in a love story where fathers run to their children because they're prodigal sons, where, where friends kneel down in front of vulnerable women that are caught in adultery and say, I don't condemn you. It's a love story written on a contract. But I think the church in America at large, all of us, what we have done is we have not lived covenantally when it comes to the vulnerable. We have lived like an absentee father where you show up every six months. And you have fun, you have a good time, you know. You might give some gifts, have a fun moment. But I think the love of God is there is a widow and her kids <laughs> And then there's a man who might sh- start showing up at the beginning. He shows up every six months. And then he starts to have dinner, and they become friends. And then eventually he says, I love you. I want to be with you, your family, forever. But because of that gap, when we say, I don't have need of you, I believe it's left us, it's left us weak. You know, there's a song, and this isn't, as I said, this isn't just the church in America. This is me as well. There's a song that... Uh, came out with, by the Porter's Gate Worship Project that really stuck with me. It's called Justice. Um, and this is sung by a black woman, and this is what she says right after the death of George Floyd. Sung by a black woman right after the death of George Floyd. She says, they're meant, speaking of the police officer, speaking of the police brutality, she says, they're meant to protect us, but kill us instead. They're meant to defend us, but step on our necks. And this is where I, I, I wept. 
the watchmen were sleeping and left us for dead. And I thought about as a pastor, am I not called to be a shepherd and a watchman for the most vulnerable? And we have the vulnerable and the poor crying out. And she says, the watchmen were sleeping and left us for dead. Another song. And you remember Lauren Hill? Any Lauren Hill fans? Yeah, you with me? Thank you. Yeah, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. There's another song called Zion on that album that's one of my wife's favorites, and it's become a favorite of mine. It's a throwback. If you don't know Lauren Hill, you got to know Lauren Hill. If you're younger in this audience and you're like, I don't know who that is, well, you should. <laughs> All right? It's one of those. It stands the test of time. So, yeah, yeah, you, it stands the test of time. And she's contemplated getting an abortion, you know. So she's writing about her son Zion. She named Zion. She's contemplating getting an abortion. And this is what she writes. She says, knew his life deserved a chance, but everybody, I got to sing it, but everybody told me to be smart. Look at your career, they said, Lauren, baby, use your head. But instead, I chose to use my heart. And she says, now the joy of my world lives in Zion. So we have brave mothers like Lauren Hill. And the why this song stuck out to me so much. I don't know if Josh sings for you needs to, though, right? So that's an extra gift. Right? That's an extra gift for you all. I just gave you, okay? So when we have brave mothers like Lauren Hill that are pressed by culture and society to disregard children at birth, and they have the courage, they have the courage to give birth to their child. A lot of those moms, it's just what, uh, what was his name? It was just up here. Cody, just what Cody was talking about. A lot of parents are not in the position in life or society to care for their children. So what happens is children come into the foster care system right now. In the foster care system in Arizona, there are 19,000, give me grace with numbers, 19,000 kids without a permanent home. And in Arizona, there is supposedly, you know, once again, grace on numbers, 2.3 million practicing Christians 2.3 million people that say, Jesus is my life, and we can't take care of 19,000 kids. And we say, well, they're just going to come back in. You know, we take 19,000, well, the next day there's going to be 19,000. Let's have 19,000 more families ready to go. And I know that's not for every single one of you. God calls his people to different places and different spaces, but I know one thing. He's calling every one of us to love the vulnerable. Amen? Yes, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And God awakened me to this. Say, man, this dude is passionate about this. Yes, it is something God has called me to in my life and something God had to awaken me to. And it came, honestly, through foster care and adoption. My wife and I knew for a long time that we wanted to to adopt. And my wife actually gave me that vision. It became a part of our lives. So we started welcoming in kids. Until eventually we welcomed in a little girl named Samora. And we started watching this woman when she was two years old, and we just immediately fell in love with her. I said, man, if this, this little girl comes up for adoption, we, we would love to take her. There's some challenges. Samora was born with a rare genetic disorder called gluteric acidemia type 1. Don't try to repeat it. You know, very, very rare disorder to where before she's two years old, she could have a metabolic crisis. If she gets a fever or she gets dehydrated, she could have, she could have a stroke, a metabolic crisis, which is, presents like a stroke. So very cautious, first two years of her life. Like, we're weighing her food. And my wife's already a nurse, so she's, like, on top, top of it. Like, copious notes of everything, writing everything down. 
to where she's a year old, she comes into our care, we're doing respite for her at this time, she already has a foster family, great Christian foster family that we became really close friends with, so we're just doing respite care for her, so we're doing respite care, respite care is babysitting for foster kids, so we're doing respite care, and she's a little sick, she's a little off, so my wife takes note of it, and we drop her off, give her back to the, to the foster family, and say, hey, just, just watch her, because, you know, she's a little dehydrated, a little sick, so I just want to make sure she's, she's going to be all right, and the foster mom who's on top of it takes her to the doctor, um, and the doctor says, hey, everything's fine, you can go ahead and head, and head home, and my wife breathes a sigh of relief, she heads to Virginia, I actually forget why she headed to Virginia, but she heads to Virginia, and then that night, I get a phone call from the foster family, and they say, something's wrong, we're going to the hospital. So I live downtown, I'm right next to Phoenix Children's Hospital, so I get there really quick. I'm in the ER waiting, and the family comes in, and I immediately know something's off with Samora. You know, so her arm is out like this, pinned, and this arm is pinned to her chest, clutched. She has this glazed look looking out in the distance, and we're all freaking out. So they rush us back to the ER, they rush us back to the ICU, the worst has happened. She's having a stroke. And if you've ever actually been in the ICU where someone's dying, it is a madhouse, right? As it should be. Chaos, because what you have, so we're in the ICU, we're stepped back, the doors, they fly open, and you have 10 doctors, nurses, God knows who else is in that room, running around, trying to get her hooked up, trying to get her the medicine she needs, trying to do whatever they can to save her life. Me and the foster family are bawling our eyes out. You know, just losing it, just watching her die right in front of us. And all of a sudden, a voice comes to me. And it doesn't speak to me. It rises up from inside of me. And a lot of you come from Redemption Gateway, so you'll know this language that Luke uses. It's, it is tender. <laughs> it is like tender but strong. It is gentle, but it is firm. And it tells me to come, come closer. And I know exactly what it's asking me to do. I know exactly what it's asking me to do. So I take a step closer to Samora. And I, I'm like transfixed. I can't get my eyes off her. I'm still bawling my eyes out, but I'm like transfixed on her. And then come closer. Come closer. I know it's the voice of God. Come closer. To where eventually I come all the way up to her hospital bed. I crawl into her hospital bed with her. I am this far from her face, transfixed on her face. And I'm like in and out of consciousness because I'm so emotional. It's the middle of the night. It's probably 3 a.m. In, in and out of consciousness. So eventually we wake up to the worst has happened. She's had a stroke. The foster family that was caring for her says, hey, we're at a place now. Where I just don't think we can care for her because they lived an hour away. They had another family, they had kids. We didn't have any kids at this time. So she comes into our permanent care. We sign, sign the papers to actually become her foster family in the hospital. You've got to remember, at this time of the stroke, I am nobody in this girl's life. I'm not a guardian. I'm not a foster parent. I'm not part of the state. I'm not a parent. All I know is I love that girl. That's the only thing God's given me, is that I love that girl. So we live with her in the hospital for two months doing therapy. She comes out, and then for two years trying to keep her safe, doing whatever we have to do. We don't want her to have another stroke. We're trying to protect her. We're trying to keep her safe. And this is the point where I, what's the best way to describe this, is I'll just say I almost lost my faith. I've done this work for 10 years. I've told you, I've done this work for 10 years. And I'm five years deep into doing this work. I'm five years deep into being a pastor. And I thought God cared for the most vulnerable. Did he not? Does he not tell us he does? Does he not care for orphans? 
And, what else? and you have my Latina daughter with special needs who's orphaned. I feel like she fits some of those categories. You know what I'm saying? Where you'd say, like, okay, like if there's a vulnerable, like I feel like it's in there, so God, why would you? So there'd be months where I wouldn't read my Bible. I wouldn't pray. And the only thing I could do is scream at God, which I learned later on is called lamenting. All I knew how to do at that point in time was lament. I was so angry with the Lord. So angry with the Lord. So I find myself at a leadership collective every two months. All the leaders at Redemption Church come together. We worship and we praise the Lord and maybe there's like a teaching moment. But I'm at a leadership collective. I'm in the front row just right here. And one of the worship leaders from Redemption Peoria is leading worship. And I'm trying to worship the Lord, you know, I'm trying to, because I'm still a pastor at this point in time, <laughs> so I'm trying to do what I can. You know, so I'm, I've got my hands raised, I'm trying to worship the Lord, and that voice comes back to me. And it rises up in me again. And it says, come closer, come closer. And then it, it comes back to me. That, that time when she had a stroke and God was telling me to come closer, I had no idea what God was trying to communicate to me. God, what are you trying to say? Come closer. I knew he wanted me to come closer and see her, but I had no idea why. To where just like that, I'm like, God, what do you want to say? What do you want to, what do you want to say? And he says, when you see her, you see me. And I lost it. Because I knew this when God speaks, I knew exactly what he was saying. God took me back I, for years in caring for her. Because we'd be in and out of the hospital. If ever she got the slightest fever, we'd be a week in the hospital. So in and out of the hospital for three years. You know, so I'd be standing over her hospital bed. And I'd paint this picture of me and Jesus. And I'm standing next to Jesus, and he's telling me all the things that we know are true and good. He's telling me, I love her more than you do. You have to know that. I've suffered before her. Josh, you can trust me. You know, all these things that are good, they're right and true. Never once did I actually imagine Jesus in the hospital bed and me caring for him. And all of a sudden, Matthew 25 comes to me. As you do to the least of these, you do to me. Jesus says, and then whew, I get this image of me, and then God creates another image in my head where I'm changing Jesus's bedpan, <laughs> and he's teaching me about the kingdom of God. That's our Savior. <laughs> and then I have this image that comes back to me. Samora was three years old. We're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, and if you've, a Jesus Storybook Bible is phenomenal if you've never read it. But you get to the part of the crucifixion, and I think the title of the crucifixion is The Day the Sun Stops Shining. I believe that's the title of it. So we're flipping the pages. I'm with some more three years old. And we get to uh, the crucifixion page, and there's a picture of Jesus. And unprompted, she starts to point to to areas on Jesus' body, and then she points to herself. And all of a sudden, I'm recognizing she points to where the spear went in the side, this wound on Jesus, and she's pointing to where her G-tube is, her feeding tube. And then she points, there's a scar in the picture where Jesus is wounded here. And then she points directly to herself where she has a port, you know. So a port is like a a medical port for like you're trying to get IVs, you know, easy access for fluids and IVs. And she points right here. And at three years old, three years old, my daughter is identifying with the sufferings of Christ in a way that I've never experienced. When you see her, Jesus was telling me, you see me. You know, when someone comes up to me and they say, man, she is just so lucky and blessed to have you. I know immediately they don't get it. Even, though with, even with the best intentions. You know, I know you don't get it. But when someone comes up to me and says, you are just so blessed to have one another. 
I say, you understand, I need her just as much as she (laughs) needs me. I need her, I believe, more than she needs me. From day one, it has been love, and to this day, it's a gift, as Cody said. It's a gift. It's like, uh, it's like the treasure hidden in the field. And this is where I, I want to end our time and just rooting us back down in the gospel because I believe this is a piece of the kingdom of God. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. You know, what does it say? It says you find a treasure hidden in a field. And what does this man do? He sells everything. He sells everything he owns to go and buy that Now, in selling everything, in losing everything, in losing your life and picking up your cross, is there suffering? We would all say, yeah, of course there's suffering. But in comparison to seeing the face of Jesus in the weak and the vulnerable, in comparison to the kingdom of God, is it worth it? What do we say? Is it worth it? I need response. (laughs) Be with me. Yes, it is worth it. Yes, we cannot compare the treasure that we have in Jesus. We cannot compare the treasure we have in Jesus with the suffering that may come alongside of it. If you want to see Jesus, and this is my my final word, if you want to see Jesus, if you want to gaze into the eyes of Jesus, if you want to, as Paul says, I want to know you. At the end of the day, sometimes I'll pray. I'm not even kidding you. I pray and I have to move all of these people in my life away, away. I have an image of Jesus over here. And just for a moment, I want to gaze on the face of Jesus and just move everybody else away so I can gaze at Jesus. Right? And then I come back into life, and Jesus moves all those people back in front of me and says, now go love them. But just to gaze on the face of Jesus, and that's what Paul says, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. And he says, and partake in your sufferings. If you want to see Jesus, let's go to the margins. Let's love our neighbor. Pray with me. Father, God, we love you because you first love us. God, apart from the love of God, God, who would, be, who would we be? What would we have? God, we say we need you, God, and we need the vulnerable. God, we are a needy people. We are a poor people, God, and we serve a God who was rich and became poor so that we might become rich. We serve a God who emptied himself becoming nothing and was exalted on a cross. My God, our God is weak, he's vulnerable, and he is strong. He is strong, stronger than we could ever imagine. God, help us now in loving you and loving the world around us. In the name of Jesus, all God's people say with me, Amen.